HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Whole Foods Market, a dynamic leader in the quality food business, a mission-driven company that aims to set the standards of excellence for food retailers. For more information, visit WholeFoodsMarket.com. I'm Linda Palaccio, host of A Taste of the Past. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. Welcome to All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. This is a special episode of On the Road with host Sherry Bayer reporting from the 2015 Menus of Change Leadership Summit at the Culinary Institute of America at Hyde Park, New York, which took place June 17th to the 19th. So Menus of Change, the business of healthy, sustainable, and delicious food choices, is a groundbreaking leadership initiative launched in 2012 by the CIA and the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. Now in its fourth year, it's working to realize a long-term practical vision for the integration of optimal nutrition and public health, environmental stewardship and restoration, and social responsibility concerns within the food service sector and beyond. This year's annual summit program included informational general sessions, engaging panel discussions, and interactive breakout sessions. In the first part of today's show, Shari chats with Waldi Malouf, the Senior Director at Food and Beverage Operations at the Culinary Institute of America, following his breakout session on Pangea, a case study in innovation, Earth's flavors rediscovered. And Shari gets Waldi to play her special speed round game. We'll cut to that in just a second. Everybody gets low, but ain't no reason to worry about what you Hi, this is Sherry Bayer of All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I am here today talking with Waldi Malouf, a 1975 graduate of the Culinary Institute of America, who has returned to his roots. He is now the Senior Director of Food and Beverage Operations at the Culinary Institute of America. And I just learned about Pangea, a case study in innovation, Earth's flavors rediscovered, Pangea is Hyde Park's newest pop-up restaurant where global flavors and conscious dining come together. 
Here's more from Waldy. Now, you're a CIA graduate from... 1975. Yes. So, briefly, what's your background, how you... Because you kind of went full circle now, leaving, graduating from here, and now you're... you're back just, here. You're back. Yes. Um, well, after I graduated, I spent a lot of time in Europe, and I came back to New York, New York City, not expecting to stay there, but ended up staying there for 35 40 years. I'm, and there I worked at various restaurants and then started opening my own um, restaurant, Beacon, Beacon and a couple of pizza Beacon. shops, and yeah. ran the Rainbow Room for a, a while. Had a restaurant downtown called the Hudson River Club that was down in the World Financial Center that was uh, sort of worked with local and seasonal foods before Farm to Table was actually a, a thing. So it's, I, I like to think we were part of setting that trend. Um, but then when leases were up and uh, businesses were were finishing and um, the, the school reached out to me, the president reached out to me and, uh, and told me they needed somebody to help them with the restaurants. They'd grown from having one restaurant to actually they have ten now on three campuses. So I oversee all ten restaurants on the three different campuses and then special projects I have on the side in my free time. It's amazing. So the three there's there's here there's in Napa and Yonville. Or it's in that it's in okay. St. Helena okay. in Napa and um, and in Napa Valley. Uh, we have actually three restaurants on that campus. And uh, there's a there's a con- the conservatory which is a farm to table. We have our own farm at that campus, and then uh, the the Greystone restaurant and the Ely Cafe, which is a bakery, more casual restaurant. And they're I've, all classrooms. I've been there because I was in Napa in the fall. Okay. And going to get a massage in St. Helena. Yes, that's a and good I, thing. Yeah, and I drove by, and oh. I was so excited, so I stopped and I walked oh, around for a little oh, bit. Oh, good. It's a beautiful place. It's a beautiful. beautiful spot. And then we have, uh, at the moment, one restaurant in San Antonio, but uh, once a year, half of the year, we also run a bakery cafe there, which are also both, both classrooms. And then we have... The three main restaurants here, Pangea and um, the Apple Pie Cafe here, which are all um, re- restaurants and classrooms also. So Pangea started as a pop-up. Yes. But it's it, it clo- you're saying it's closed now? It's closing at the end of the month. Okay. Is it, and and it's why, go- is that, why is it closing? Well, our, our class sizes change. Okay. So we opened it in order to handle an upswing in class sizes. Now, over the summer and into the fall, our class sizes will go down again, and we won't we won't need it or have students enough to go into it. And then next winter, it'll go back. It rises back up. It's sort of the flow of our students, which we try to get more even, but it's difficult. We have um, as our as our student base becomes more directly out of high school, they um, or first year of college. They they want a more traditional entry date, which is September. And so the way that works through the system is they get to the restaurants in the um, in the winter, in the winter semesters. That's and and that's when we we need the extra restaurant. Great. So I I've been noticing a bit of this trend. Of- <laughs> Vegetable focus, plant focus. Yes. Seems like it's going to continue. It seems like we're on the cusp 
Well, one of the reasons we did it is because we feel it's just going to grow. It's been trending for a, a while, but now you'll go to Michelin star restaurants and you'll see a traditional tasting menu, and on, on the other side of the menu, you'll see a vegetarian menu. You People are starting to realize that it's better to eat that way. Uh, like I said in, in my talk, that uh, we can't eat the 32-ounce porterhouse with a little bit of spinach. Well, some and, people and, can. Well, some people can, <laughs> but it's not, it's not right. good for them. It's not no. good for the economy. It's not good for um, your health. It's not good for the planet. It's not, there's, a, there's just a lot of reasons. There's a lot of reasons to, to move in that direction, uh, even just to population growth that's, that's going to happen over the next... 50 years uh, of attempting to feed all those people and keeping the water the way it is. It's, it's, so it's, it's conscientious dining, which really needs to be part of what, how the world eats. And you see it happening. Young people, they just um, they enjoy it more. And as we eat more bold food, bold tasting foods, and incorporate uh, spices and cooking trends and uh, international uh, ways of cooking, it, the vegetables taste better. It's just not a... Uh, you don't go in a restaurant anymore. Rarely do you go in a restaurant and say you, you like a vegetarian meal and they're going to give you a platter of grilled vegetables or something. They're, it's going to be a composed dish that has great flavors, just yeah. like any other dish would be. Absolutely. I think it's wonderful what you're doing. Uh-huh. What's the biggest change you think from when you were a student here to now being at the school? Yeah. At the school. Well, other than just size, <laughs> uh, in my class there was 100 students. Now there's 2,200 students wow. on the campus, oh um, and it was only one building. Um, then it was much more focused only on cooking and not a lot of other things that it is now. It has turned into a real college, almost a university with different different schools of areas of uh, concentration and expertise uh, that they didn't uh, that it didn't offer in the past. It certainly didn't offer the bachelor's degree when I was here. It was just a two year AMS degree, not just, but that's what it was. Um, but there's much more focus on food science, uh, business, entrepreneurship, uh, di- research and development, um, beverages. Uh, I'm opening. We're opening a brewery uh, in our new student dining facility. We've partnered with Brooklyn Brewery, uh, and um, that's part of a concentration in, in advanced beverage concentration. In California, we are partners in a winery and partners in a farm. That uh, so there's a farm-to-table concentration that happens out there, and a wine and wine professional program that works that is out there. You have the opportunity to go to San Antonio, where uh, Latin cuisine and Latin American cuisine is a focus there, in addition to our standard um, curriculum, and so it's. Because of how it's grown, that's that's the differences in the um, you know the the language, the history, the um, all the other courses that are provided now that weren't really there then. But when I went, you graduated, and then you went and did usually some sort of apprenticeship. 
but you would also continue your education. I, I went to NYU and took, took courses after I left here, and a lot of people went to Cornell. Uh, or, But now they don't have to. They can do all that right. here. Wonderful. Okay, so to end, I do on my show, I have a speed round game I play. Okay. And I've done it so many times, I think I know it by heart. All right. play my questions. But I don't. We'll play my, we'll okay. play my game okay. if you're up for it. <clears throat> I'm up for it. Okay, so here we go. Eat in or eat out? Out. Wine, beer, or cocktail? Beer. Tasting menu or a la carte? A la carte. Small plates or large plates? Small plates. Um, communal table or chef's counter? Communal table. Tipping or all-inclusive charge? All-inclusive. Running a restaurant or teaching students how to run a restaurant? Running a restaurant. <laughs> ah, still going there. And uh, Hudson Valley or New York City? Both. Both. Are you living Gotta here have now? both. Okay. I'm living here now, but we have a, a, a small um, a small studio in the city as well. Awesome. I lived in the city for 30, 30, over 30 years, so I can't really break away from it completely yet, although I live on a two-acre farm up here, and it's beautiful. Wow, I hear you. Oh, the only one I missed was uh, cheese plate or dessert? Cheese plate. Perfect. Awesome. Great at the game. You're great. I'm so glad I, I, I saw you okay. here. Thank you so Good. much for My your pleasure. time. My That was Shari Bayer talking with Waldi Malouf, the Senior Director of Food and Beverage Operations at the Culinary Institute of America at the 2015 Menus of Change Conference. We'll be right back after a short break for more All in the Industry with Shari Bayer on the road. Today's program has been brought to you by Whole Foods Market. Are you a locavore? Our Northeast Regional Forager for Whole Foods Market sure is. She spends her time traveling around the New York City metro area sourcing the best new or interesting artisanal and handcrafted local products for our purchasing teams at the local store level. Part of our commitment to our local suppliers includes assisting them with the process of getting their products sold at our stores. Whether it's suggesting packaging designs, pricing, or distribution methods, she's helping some of the area's best new products reach savvy shoppers at Whole Foods Market stores. Today, New York. Tomorrow, the world. For more information, visit WholeFoodsMarket.com. And the break song you're listening to is Don't Marry Mermaids by Mamarazzi. This is Jack Inslee. We're back on All in the Industry. And on the second part of this special show, an on-the-road edition of All in the Industry, from the 2015 Menus of Change Conference, Shari listens in on the main stage panel discussion, which was entitled Cooking Up a Story and Picking the Right Recipe. Featured journalists Jane Black... Sarah Nassier of the Wall Street Journal and Kim Severson of the New York Times, moderated by our episode 63 guest, Anne McBride, the Director of Culinary Programs and Editorial Strategic Initiatives at the CIA. Here's a part of that conversation on vegetables, food trends, trust in chefs, and more. Coming right up. Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome back for our last uh, general session of the day. 
and uh, we are going to talk about cooking up a story and picking up the right, picking the right recipes. So basically, we're going to talk about how chefs and media can work together to be agents of change. Um, and joining me on stage, um, from stage right, I guess, or stage left, I never know which side is which, um, I w uh, is, first is Jane Black, a food writer who covers sustainability, food politics, and trends for the Washington Post, New York Times, and Wall Street Journal, among many others. Um, Jane is currently working on a book about a West Virginia town's struggle to change the way it eats and whether the food revolution can cross geographical, cultural, and class boundaries. Jane Black. And joining her uh, next is Sarah Nassar, who's the retail and consumer trends reporter for the Wall Street Journal, whom you met earlier, Sarah. And Kim Severson, Atlanta Bureau Chief for the New York Times, whom you met this morning. become such a sexy story? Because they're delicious. No, I, well, I mean, I, I'll just, I, I live in the South and I um, have been there for about four and a half years when the Southern food thing sort of took off in a way. And I think um, that was very interesting. We have chefs down there who are you know, like real vegetable whisperers who really, you know, South is a very agrarian history. I always like to call it the Italy of the South, you know, the Italy of America in a way, is it's very regional and how someone cooks their collars in one county or different from another county, and people have big discussions about that. And I think it was this, um, I think I, I blame the South in some ways. I think that the idea of the vegetable plate and of cooking vegetables rose with um, the rise of Southern cuisine. So I think that's one, re one reason. The Jerusalem cookbook's probably another reason. I mean, I think it's because it's people just started making it delicious. I don't know. I think it's the counterintuitive thing. I think it's that, you know, vegetables were always eat your vegetables. It was an obligation, right? And then people like Amanda, you know, we saw cook today and all kinds of people started to give them the respect they deserve and people sort of thought, oh, well, that's cool. I mean, a truly delicious carrot. And then, of course, there was the follow-up story, which was, oh, my God, they just charged me $28 for a carrot. And then, you know, on and on and on. So it was just sort of new. And you can't have a farm to table without stuff. Well, because then there's nothing seasonal about it. Because it can't all just be beef to table. You know? Right. <laughs> we could. Right. So. What about your perspective, yeah, Sarah? I, I think about the long, the long history of that question because I, my mother, I know she always used to talk about, my mother has an extensive vegetable garden in her yard in Michigan, and she grew up eating mostly canned vegetables in Iowa. And she talked about, you know, when I was a kid, you didn't like vegetables because they didn't taste that good, because they were from a can in December, <laughs> um, or even in the summer sometimes. And, you know, from that, you follow the availability of produce, you know, going back a few decades now, and then move from there to where we are today. I think in the more recent past, we're at a point where vegetables are something that we all at least know that we should be eating more of and you have that mandate you have that in your head you're putting that in your kid's head and and things grow from there and i also think that you can discount uh, alice waters in this conversation as much as you know she's easy to make fun of and you know 
Dallas, but uh, truly the idea of uh, trying to get a whole army of children who would grow their own vegetables and um, eat kale, and it really actually does work. Um, and I think that you know, you've got a generation of kids who are now coming up who have started to have that culinary um, education school and the gardening, uh, education based on gardening. And so they're relating to vegetables in ways. So I think that's that's feeding it as well, too, because they, parents then have to think about vegetables. But I will say there's some, I mean, some of this is a wish, right? I mean, statistically still, there's, as we all know, there's a lot of meat that is eaten. And that's still center of the plate in lots of people's homes and in a lot of restaurants and all of that. Some of this is, is aspirational still for a certain percentage of the population or even for, you know, certain meals, right? You want to eat more vegetables or you're trying to eat more vegetables and fruit. Um, I think it's that, that aspiration. That, to me, that's interesting. We're sort of on the cusp of something, perhaps. I, mean, I do think it's globalization, too, though, of our diets. And so other cultures, we're cooking from other cultures that aren't putting meat in the middle of the plate. Um, right, right. I also just, in terms of aspirational thing, I was just thinking about aspirational getting kids to eat vegetables. Because as someone you've probably heard me tell this story, I have a three-and-a-half-year-old, and she's... You know, it's like this karmic joke that I got the kid that doesn't want to eat anything. And she, you know, she, I grew all these tomatoes, you know, because if you grow them, then they'll eat them. That is actually not true, um, <laughs> as it turns out. And then, um, by sort of hooker, by crook, because, you know, in Brooklyn, I live in Brooklyn, so, you know, you have to have a tattoo. So they have vegetable tattoos now for kids. But I, I also don't think you can discount the, you know, we... The, the importance of how food trends in this country. We're a very aspirational country in how we eat and how food trends, you know, start at the top at good restaurants sure. and then go down. So now you have someone like Dirk Candy and journalists like, uh, food journalists are like, huh, here's somebody who's doing really interesting things with vegetables in a cool restaurant in New York that we haven't seen before. It's delicious. It's different. I've never seen it. We write about it. And eventually this will trickle down. I mean, if you look, you know, the molten chocolate cake that now <coughs> you can get at, um, you know, Arby's drive through like they have a, you know, our, our hot center, you know, that, or I said, maybe it's Arby's or it's... Yeah, I'm not sure, but it's a fast, is it? It's Arby's. Thank you. This man <laughs> knows everything. You know, and that started because Jean-Georges started making right. it, you know, in Manhattan 15 years ago. Right, the molten chocolate cake you know? and... You know, whole roasted carrots. It's a totally an easier well, sell. You know, I mean, you know, Chipotle. That the McDonald's has Chipotle mayonnaise. You know, like in their Chipotle mayonnaise wrap, but they're testing that. I mean, this starts yeah. with yeah, you know, sure. garlic roasted potatoes. You know, garlic and mashed potatoes started as a bistro in San Francisco, and then ended up through the American sluice box of culture at Boston. You know, at uh, Boston Market. I mean, American food industry is great at taking something somebody's kind of interested in very high level and then mass marketing it. So I don't think you can discount that even, you know, whether it's a roasted carrot or, you know, Brussels sprouts, I think, you know, I think these things will, will really trickle down fairly quickly. So our job is to go, oh, at this very high, like the fancy art part of how we eat culinary as art, we kind of write about that. We find, you know, we luckily because of our jobs can, you know, eat at those places and call up chefs and we talk to people and we sort of see where the cutting edge is, write about that because that's new and news. And then it trickles down and then when it becomes, you know, molten chocolate cake at Arby's, we get to write about, look at America falling apart, molten chocolate cakes at Arby's. So, you know, we get an opportunity to write at many levels of that story. But again, as I said in this earlier panel, you know, we're, we're just calling balls and strikes. We're just like, here's what's going on. This is not truthful. This is truthful. This is a twist in how people are eating. This is a twist in how people are cooking. You know, new 
news, you know, we're not here to advocate, at least I'm, I, my newspaper does not pay me to advocate for a position, um, but we are, you know, um, I think advocates of the delicious and advocates of the truth, so that's about as far as... So where those two things meet, the delicious and the truth. Delicious and the truth, that's my job. <laughs> so um, how much do you trust chefs when it comes to nutrition, sustainability, food policy, because... Um, they have been put in situations of being spokespeople for those issues and uh, being trusted sources as they're such an intermediary between consumers and the, um, the government or um, or farmers, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But the information is not always necessarily accurate, or is it? Or what, fil what filters or what radars do you have up when you're talking to a chef about nutrition, sustainability, policy, etc.? I mean, I tend to not, I mean, I don't think you can generalize. I mean, if I could ask Michelle Nishan about sustainability or, you know, I believe anything that man says. So, um, but, you know, I mean, on nutrition, I tend to trust them a lot less. Um, you know, I'm talking about chefs in small restaurants who, you know, realize that a lot of things taste a lot better with butter and cream in them. And I don't want to know about what's in that. I want to just go and enjoy my meal. Um, But I think it really depends. And, you know, what I would say about um, it isn't a question of trust. It's a question of if you are a chef who wants to be up and talking about that, please go do your homework because you undercut yourself if you make a mistake. And it was funny. I was talking to this guy who's a chef in... Uh, at this restaurant called Egg in Brooklyn, and he, he's very interested in sustainability, and he's very committed to these issues, and he said that he was going to one of these James Beard boot camps, um, and I thought, oh, why are you going to the James Beard boot camp? You know, surely this should be for somebody who's really new to these issues, you know, not someone who's, you know, not preaching to the choir, and he, his answer to me was, you know, I, I still don't know how to talk about it. And I still don't know how to, like, I didn't know what a policy ask was. Um, and that, you know, he was very interested in it, but had this lens through which he was looking at it. And he had sort of been able to take what he was doing at the restaurant and, and be able to frame it in different ways. And so I, you know, I was like, oh, well, great. You see, I was completely wrong about that. Um, but so I think it's that kind of thing. If you're not really... Um, Just because you're a chef and you cook food doesn't mean you should be talking about those things. And so if you're going to be talking about those things, you need to know what you're talking about. I think chefs, it's, it's tough these days because so many people, I mean, even if you look at the, the slides we saw before, if a chef is telling somebody about their food, they're more likely to eat it if it's better. Like if that, I mean, chefs, so not only do we expect a chef to be there, you know, it's a whole collapsing again of, of culture. So chefs are going to tell us about our food and, and I'm going to take the recommendation for that. I also, chefs are being put upon now to talk about food policy. They're needing to know everything in their supply chain about which farms are, you know, doing the right environmental practices. They need to know about labor issues and are expected to sort of be leaders on that. And I talk to chefs who feel like because you get to a certain level, they need to have some sort of a foundation or some kind of charitable arm so that then, you know, when everybody's coming to them for asks to give food to certain causes, they have at least their pet cause that then they can just say, I'm putting my money toward that. So it's a lot of pressure on people who just wanted to cook, you know. It's like, it's a lot. Um, but I think there's no denying that the out of our initial celebrity chef 
you know, explosion, which I think that star is sort of fading in a way. The t- there's like TV chefs now, and then there's chefs that we look to for leadership as well, like the groups are separating. I think there's a, a lot on chefs. And, um, you know, I just, I kind of cringe every time I hear Tom Colicchio going off about GMOs because I think he's he's not always correct or he's, he's very much an advocate, but people... Now he's like being like kind of a faux news reporter, Tom Colicchio, or some like you know. It's I, I mean I'm not sure. I mean I'm, Tom's great, whatever, but I'm not sure how much he actually is factual or knows. So again, there's nothing worse than a chef who doesn't know what he or she is talking about, trying to sort of spout off on all their views on you know. It gets it gets really fudgy around the edges for me. So I tend to. Unless I feel like a chef's really researched that because they want to get the best fish that's sustainable in their seafood restaurant. And they've really thought a lot about it. And they talk to the fishermen and they know that, I mean, that that's great. And that person knows their stuff. But if there's some, you know, it's just because it's the, you know, politically correct position of the day for a chef to have. And they don't really have much background on it. It's, I, it's just really kind of painful to listen to that. But I, I feel for chefs right now. They're really in a unique position in society. And... and have to be spokespeople and it's interesting that the state department now does it has this culinary diplomacy thing where they're taking chefs to the state department and training them to and then they they're in milan now a lot of them are going and doing you know having to talk and the fact that we our u.s government is paying money to train chefs to do diplomatic work is kind of fascinating to me i mean we really are in a, a moment with, with the position of chefs in our culture i think so taking the responsibility off of chefs, how much responsibility do you have as media? Because a lot of the chefs get their information from reading you, right. and you're interpreting studies and things like that. So how um, how do you learn about policy nutrition? Should we trust you? I mean, there's there was just an example of a um, a fake chocolate study. I don't know if you guys read that. Um, some, I think a journalist created a fake study about the, bene- the health benefits of chocolates and decided to test it. And it went viral with publications all over saying, here is this latest um, study on chocolate. Here is every- why you should eat chocolate. It's amazing. And obviously people repeat that type of information. It was a complete fake thing completely created. So um, how do you educate yourself? What is your responsibility to create and write material, not to create, but to write and report material that others can then use as sources. I don't believe that study showed up in either the Wall Street Journal or the New York Times. <laughs> of course that. not. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, we, you know, I feel like I've been in this business so long, I'll tell you. Uh, but I feel like, I, you know, Do you stu- still lose studies stress? come and studies go, right? And so, and certainly the, and, and we have a fairly high bar. We have people at the paper who are science writers. I'm not a science writer, but who, um, Really understand how to read a study and and make, see if it makes sense or not. But if and you know it, it gets, it's like you know oatmeal is good and oatmeal is bad and this is good and this is bad and saturate we got to not we have to eat margarine the margarine is bad. So um, when there's really significant um, scientific data that mo- is really moving the needle in some way, one part of that is having good sources in public health departments and at universities who. Um, I could call up and go, have you heard about this? Does this make sense? Or is anybody else talking about this? Or is this really an important one or not? You know, some of that is just betting it with people I know and trust um, or calling people I know in the science department. I say this, I'm, I'm mentioning the study, but, and then they'll ask me all the things to look at in terms of how it was done and peer review and where did it publish. And even then there's mistakes. But um, there are a whole lot of people doing a lot of science every day that, 
you know, the micronutrient nutrient study that comes out that they're going to present to the USDA that the Dairy Council funded. Well, so now we're, you know, that's going to get in the USDA guidelines because the dairy fund, you know, now we have to have a cup of milk or more yogurt. Like, all that's very suspicious, and you have to kind of understand how that process works and have a bit of a raised eyebrow about any study that comes in. Um, so it's incumbent upon us to do our homework really well and know who to go to talk to to say, does this make sense? And that's our job. You know, that's what we do. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that is our job. That is that's our response. That's what I spend a lot of my time so. doing. So. Um. And I also so we hope think, you can trust us. Oh, I was just going to say, so I also yes, think like we, we, I think you can, but, you know, first of all, the science also evolves. And then, you know, I mean, I, the stories I read about grass-fed beef eight years ago are different than the stories I read about now because now everybody's concerned about water and nobody was asking about water before. And so I'm taking different things into consideration when I'm, and I, you know, find myself all of a sudden being a food writer and people want me to have answers about drought and water. And, you know, I mean, I have to educate myself. So... I mean, you know, the stories I wrote on GMOs five years ago, are, I would probably cringe at now because having written it so many, you know, I, 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 am, I do know more to ask um, and more skeptical about certain things or, you know, whatever. So I think that um, clearly we do the best that we can. We know what we know what to look for. We know what to be too skeptical about. But, I, I mean, the deeper you get into a subject, the better yeah, and we're generalists, it. you know, and we're writing the first draft of history, and we're writing, you know, what do you need to know today, you know, and um, so again, like your point is well taken, things evolve, you know, which is why you have to be very careful when you're, you know, writing about any scientific breakthroughs and, and have a, a raised eyebrow, but it's, you know, we're doing, we're, we're in the daily news business, and, you know, things change day to day, um, and I like to think we haven't, I don't think I've had any outright, this study was like, I can't believe it was a fake chocolate study. I don't right. think I've had a fake chocolate study. Knock on wood again. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, obviously the three of you are probably the most trusted voices indeed when it comes to these issues. What are things that other media, and we won't name things, um, do that make you cringe when it comes to sustainability issues, to the work of chefs on sustainability? What do, what do we hate to see in other media when it comes to sustainability? Hmm. A topic, it's a way of talking about a topic. But well, I think for me, you know, I, you know, I'm somebody who, this may be a positive or a negative, but sort of I like the grays and the complexities. And so I just get really annoyed when it's like, this is right, you know, and this is eat grass-fed beef or eat, you know, first we're thinking of Brooklyn and we're thinking of grass-fed beef, you know, but I mean, just as an example, I mean, I think these things are extremely complicated and, you know, quite often it depends what you're comparing it to. So that's my new question is sort of, you know, um, you know, is it better than, than what? I mean, there's, there's X amount of omega-3s in grass-fed beef, but you could eat one bite of salmon and get that much more. So should you really be eating grass-fed beef over a um, corn-fed beef, if you're worried about omega-3s, no. Um, so, you know, I think those are the kinds of things that really frustrate me, these sort of definitive silver bullet, black and whites, because as anybody who deals with this knows, it's really not that simple. And I know it doesn't make quite as exciting a headline, but maybe that's why I've always been a terrible headline writer. <laughs> yeah, there's a certain stridency that um, really exhausts me around yes. food. Um, and a very, you know, it's so personal for people if you're not, you know, 
you know, you know, and I understand that the, the food system is broken in lots of ways, and we have big health problems related to food, and we have big class problems related to food, and, um, you know, people who come along and instantly think they have the big idea that's going to fix it, which is that, you know, screw Monsanto, man, and this is how can you, you know, I, it, it you know, it's sort of the way of the world forever, and part of what we're in is this process of trying to change it slowly and change it from the plate and, you know, individual discussion. And um, I, I think that's what just, I mean, there's some really good work that gets done in the real advocacy journalism. Like Civil Leads, I think, does some good stuff, but I also think that it's, it, you know, I'm always a bit skeptical just because the point of view is so strong, and they go out with the point, with the, their, their goal is to go and filter out everything else and, support their thesis, which oftentimes is, is, is really good and right, and, you know, you know, the tomato pickers are really getting screwed in Florida. I don't disagree with that. And um, uh, But wading through that, I never feel like I have, um, you know, like the, the other side, like, you know, okay, well, we're also, there's an industry that everybody wants a tomato on their plate, and so how are people going to pay more? Like, it's just not, like you said, it's not nuanced enough. So I think there's really good and increasingly good advocacy food journalism that I, I read and, and learn things from, but um, uh, it's it's it pains me that people take that as, as gospel, you know. Um, and I think there's a lot increasing more of that. And have you seen Food Inc? It's that's the you know. And I just like people at a cocktail party. I, I hate telling them what I didn't do for a living because I just have to hear this. <laughs> barrage of how screwed up the food system is and that I should be writing about how evil Monsanto is every day and um, you know I just like I just I just tell people I sell insurance and they leave me alone <laughs> Finally, Shari wraps things up with another round of her awesome speed round game, this time with Kim Severson of the New York Times. Here it comes. Hi, I'm here with Kim Severson, Atlanta Bureau Chief. Is that the correct title? I'm now a domestic correspondent for the New York Times, so... That's fancy. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. Okay, we're going to do my speed round game, so here we go. Eat in or eat out? We'll eat in. Wine, beer, or cocktail? Uh, I haven't had a drink in 17 years, so I would go for the mocktail. I haven't had a drink in almost 13. Mazel! I meet people this way that right. have the connection. My sober should, sister. Yes, I should throw in mocktail, but right. awesome. Okay, uh, taste, tasting, a menu, tasting menu or a la carte? Um, a la carte. Small place or large place? Um, I like big family style. Awesome. Tipping or all-inclusive charge? I usually, I think all-inclusive is important for restaurants because I think they're going to go under if we keep this tipping method, but I usually tip on top of an all-inclusive. Awesome. Okay, a few more. Uh, communal table or chef's counter? Oh, I kind of like communal table. I let the chef do their work. I want to see who I'm talk at dinner with and talk to them. Awesome. Julia Moskin or Fichet Ong? <gasps> Julia Moskin, <laughs> my sister. I love her. Even the, yeah, Julia, every time. Julia, every time. Uh, cheese plate or dessert? Ooh, sugar. 
Sugar. I'm I go you. sugar. Last one, Atlanta or New York City? Oh, that's so hard to pick. I almost want to pick California. Um, okay. I don't know. I would say if I had any place to choose, it would be Sonoma County, California. Love it. Thank you so much. You're Thank awesome. you. I hope that worked for you. All right, many thanks to Waldy Maloof, Kim Severson, Jane Black, Sarah Nassier, and Anne McBride, and Jan Smith at the Culinary Institute of America. Congratulations on a terrific 2015 Menus of Change Leadership Summit. It was an honor for Heritage Radio Network to be a part of the conference and visit the beautiful CIA campus. For more information about Menus of Change, go to menusofchange.org. Follow them on social media at CIA Culinary, at CIA Leadership, and hashtag C-I-A-M-O-C. And, as always, you can follow us at All Industry, at Sherry Bayer, and at Heritage underscore Radio. I've been Jack Inslee, and this has been a special episode of All in the Industry on the Road by Sherry Bayer for Heritage Radio Network. Thank you so much for tuning in, and we'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore radio. You can email us with questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. 